From Ritual to Romance by Jesse L. Weston First published in 1921 Preface In the introductory chapter, the reader will find the aim and object of these studies set forth at length. In view of the importance and complexity of the problems involved, it seemed better to incorporate such a statement in the book itself, rather than relegate it to a preface, which all might not trouble to read. Yet I feel that such a general statement does not adequately express my full debt of obligation. Among the many whose labor has been laid under contribution in the following pages, there are certain scholars whose published work or personal advice has been especially illuminating, and to whom specific acknowledgement is therefore due. Like many others, I owe to Sir J. G. Fraser the initial inspiration which set me, as I may truly say, on the road to the Grail Castle. Without the guidance of the Golden Bow, I should probably, as the late M. Gaston Paris happily expressed it, still be wandering in the forest of Brocéliand. During the Bayreuth Festival of 1911, I had frequent opportunities of meeting and discussion with Professor von Schroeder. I owe to him not only the introduction to his own work, which I found most helpful, but references which have been of the greatest assistance, e.g., my knowledge of Cumont's Les Religions Orientales, and Scheflowitz's valuable study on fish symbolism, both of which have furnished important links in the chain of evidence, is due to Professor von Schroeder. The perusal of Miss J.E. Harrison's Themis opened my eyes to the extended importance of these vegetation rites. In view of the evidence there adduced, I asked myself whether beliefs which had found expression not only in social institution and popular custom, but as set forth in Sir G. Murray's study on Greek dramatic origins, attached to the work, also in drama and literature, might not reasonably, even inevitably, be expected to have left their mark on romance? The one seemed to me a necessary corollary of the other, and I felt that I had gained, as the result of Miss Harrison's work, a wider and more assured basis for my own researches. I was no longer engaged merely in inquiring into the sources of a fascinating legend, but on the identification of another field of activity for forces whose potency as agents of evolution we're only now beginning rightly to appreciate. Finally, a casual reference. In Onrick's work on the mysteries to the Nassine document caused me to apply to Mr. G.R.S. Mead, of whose knowledge of the mysterious borderland between Christianity and paganism and willingness to place that knowledge at the disposal of others I had for some years past had pleasant experience. Mr. Mead referred me to his own translation and analysis of the text in question, and there, to my satisfaction, 
I found not only the final link that completed the chain of evolution from pagan mystery to Christian ceremonial, but also proof of that wider significance I was beginning to apprehend. The problem involved was not one of folklore, not even one of literature, but of comparative religion in its widest sense. Thus, while I trust that my co-workers in the field of Arthurian research will accept these studies as a permanent contribution to the elucidation of the Grail problem, I would fain hope that those scholars who labor in a wider field, and to whose works I owe so much, may find in the results here set forth elements that may prove of real value in the study of the evolution of religious belief. J. L. W. Paris, October 1919 Contents Chapter 1 Introductory Nature of the Grail Problem Unsatisfactory Character of Results Achieved Objections to Christian Legendary Origin To Folklore Origin Elements in Both Theories Sound Solution to be sought in a direction which will do justice to both Sir J.G. Fraser's Golden Bow indicates possible line of research. Sir W. Ridgway's criticism of vegetation theory examined. Dramas and dramatic dances. The living and not the dead king, the factor of importance. Impossibility of proving human origin for vegetation deities. Not death, but resurrection the essential center of ritual. Muharram, too late in date and lacks resurrection feature. Relation between defunct heroes and special localities. Sanctity possibly antecedent to connection. Mana, not necessarily a case of relics. Self-acting weapons frequent in medieval romance. Sir J.G. Fraser's theory holds good, remarks on method and design of present studies. Contents Chapter 2, The Task of the Hero Essential to determine the original nature of the task imposed upon the hero. Manasseh, Peridur, Parzival, Galahad, Quest, Result Primary task, healing of Fisher King and removal of curse of Wasteland. The two interdependent. Illness of King entails misfortune on land. Inquiry into nature of King's disability. Son de non sai. For elucidation of problem necessary to bear in mind close connection between land and ruler. Importance of Wasteland Motif for Criticism Chapter 3. The Freeing of the Waters Inquiry may commence with early Aryan tradition, the Rig Veda, 
extreme importance assigned to Indra's feat of freeing the waters. This also specific achievement of Grail heroes. Extracts from Rig Veda. Dramatic poems and monologues. Professor Vaughn parallels with Percival's story. Result, the specific task of the Grail hero, not a literary invention, but an inheritance of Aryan tradition. Contents of Chapter 4, Tammuz and Adonis General Objects to be Attained by These Nature Cults Stimulation of Fertility, Animal and Vegetable Principle of Life Ultimately Conceived in Anthropomorphic Form This Process Already Advanced in Rig Veda Greek Mythology Preserves Intermediate Stage the Ineatus Daimon, Tammuz, earliest known representative of dying God, character of the worship, origin of the name, lament for Tammuz. His death affects not only vegetable but animal life, lack of artistic representation of mysteries, Mr. Langdon's suggestion, ritual possibly dramatic. Summary of Evidence Adonis, Phoenician-Greek equivalent of Tammuz, probably most popular and best-known form of nature cult. Mythological Tale of Adonis Enquiry into Nature of Injury Importance of Recognizing True Nature of These Cults and of the Ritual Observed Varying Dates of Celebration Adonis probably originally Eniatus Daimon, principle of life in general, hence lack of fixity in date. Details of the ritual. Parallels with the Grail legend examined. Dead knight or disabled king. Consequent misfortunes of land. The weeping women. The hairless maiden. Position of castle. Summing up. Can incidents of such remote antiquity be used as criticism for a medieval text? Contents of Chapter 5 Medieval and Modern Forms of Nature Ritual Is it possible to establish chain of descent connecting early Aryan and Babylonian ritual with classic, medieval, and modern forms of nature worship? Survival of Adonis Cult Established Evidence of Manhart and Fraser. Existing continental customs recognized as survivals of ancient beliefs. Instances Quote, directly related to Addis Adonis Cult. Von Schroeder establishes parallel between existing fertility procession and Rig Veda poem. Identification of life principle with king. Prosperity of land dependent on king as representative of God. Celts. Greeks. Modern instances. The Shiluk kings. Parallel between Shiluk king, Grail king, and vegetation deity. 
Son de Nansai, and The Lament for Tammuz. Identity of Situation Plea for Unprejudiced Criticism Impossibility of Such Parallels Being Fortuitous The Result of Deliberate Intention Not an Accident of Literary Invention If identity of central character be admitted, his relation to wasteland becomes fundamental factor in criticizing versions. Another, African Survival. The Contents of Chapter 6 The Symbols Summary of Results of Previous Inquiry The Medieval Stage Grail romances probably contain record of secret ritual of a fertility cult. The symbols of the cult. Cup, lance, sword, stone, or dish. Plea for treating symbols as a related group, not as isolated units. Failure to do so probably cause of unsatisfactory result of long research. Essential to recognize Grail story as an original whole and to treat in its ensemble aspect. We must differentiate between origin and accretion. Instances. The legend of Longinus. Lance and cup not associated in Christian art. Evidence. The spear of Eastern liturgies only a knife. The bleeding lance. Treasures of the Tuatha de Danan correspond as a group with grail symbols. Difficulty of equating cauldron grail probably belong to a different line of tradition. Instances given. Real significance of lance and cup. Well known as life symbols. The samurai. Four symbols also preserved as suits of the tarot. Origin of tarot discussed. Probably reached Europe from the east. Use of the symbols in magic. Probable explanation of these various appearances to be found, in fact, that associated group were at one time symbols of a fertility cult. Contents of Chapter 7 The Sword Dance Relation of Sword Dance, Morris Dance, and Mumming Play Their Ceremonial Origin Now Admitted by Scholars Connected with Seasonal Festivals and Fertility Ritual Earliest Sword Dancers The Maruts, Von Schroeder, Mysterium und Mimus Discussion of their nature and functions. The Corites, character of their dance. Miss J.E. Harrison, Themis, the Corribantes, dance probably sacrificial in origin. The Salil, dramatic element in their dance. Mars as fertility god. Mamurius Veturius, Anna Perenna. Character of Dance Seasonal Modern British Survivals The Sword Dance Mostly Preserved in North Variants Mr. E. K. Chambers 
The Medieval Stage, The Mumming Plays, Description, Characters, Recognized as Representing Death and Revival of Vegetation Deity, Dr. Javons, Masks and the Origin of the Greek Drama, Morris Dances, No Dramatic Element, Costume of Character Significant, Possible Survival of theriomorphic origin, elaborate character of figures in each group, symbols employed, the pentangle, the chalice, present form shows dislocation, probability that three groups were once a combined whole and symbols united, evidence strengthens view advanced in last chapter. Symbols originally a group connected with lost form of fertility ritual. Possible origin of grail knights to be found in sword dancers. Contents of Chapter 8 The Medicine Man Importance and Antiquity The Rig Veda Poem Classical Evidence Mr. F. Comford Traces of Medicine Man in the Grail Romances Gawain as Healer Persistent Tradition Possible Survival from Pre-Literary Form Evidence of the Triads Peridur as Healer Evolution of Theme Les Distes de la Herberie Contents of Chapter 9 the Fisher King. Summary of evidence presented. Need a, quote, test element. To be found in central figure. Mystery of his title. Analysis of variants. Gawain version. Parsival version. Borone alone attempts explanation of title. Parsival. Perilusvas, Quest, Grand Saint Graal, Comparison with Surviving Ritual Variants, Original Form King, Dead, and Restored to Life, Old Age and Wounding Themes, Legitimate Variants, Doubling of Character, a Literary Device, Title, Why Fisher King, Examination of fish symbolism. Fish a life symbol. Examples. Indian. Manu. Vishnu. Buddha. Fish in Buddhism. Evidence from China. Orpheus. Babylonian evidence. Tammuz, Lord of the Net. Jewish symbolism. The Messianic fish meal. Adopted by Christianity. Evidence of the Catacombs Source of Boron's Fish Meals Mystery Tradition Not Celtic Folktale Comparison of Version with Finn Story With Messianic Tradition Epitaph of Bishop Aberchios Voyage of St. Brendan Connection of Fish with Goddess Astarte Cumont Connection of fish and dove. Fish as fertility symbol. Its use in marriage ceremonies. 
summing up of evidence. Fisher King, inexplicable from Christian point of view. Folklore solution unsatisfactory. As a ritual survival completely in place. Center of action and proof of soundness of theory. Contents of Chapter 10 The Secret of the Grail, Part 1 The Mysteries The Grail regarded as an object of awe. Danger of speaking of Grail or revealing its secrets. Passages in Illustration Why, if survival of nature cults popular and openly performed? A twofold element in these cults. Exoteric, esoteric. The mysteries. Their influence on Christianity to be sought in the Hellenized rather than the Hellenic cults. Kumant. Road. Radical difference between Greek and Oriental conceptions. Lack of evidence as regards mystery as a whole. Best attested form that connected with nature cults. Addis Adonis. Popularity of the Phrygian cult in Rome. Evidence as to Addis mysteries. Utilized by Neoplatonists as vehicle for teaching. Close connection with Mithraism. The Taurobolium. Details of Addis Mysteries. Parallels with the Grail Romances. Contents of Chapter 11, The Secret of the Grail, Part 2, The Nicene Document. Relations between early Christianity and pre-Christian cults. Early heresies. Hippolytus and the refutation of all heresies. Character of the work. The Nicene document. Mr. Mead's analysis of text. A synthesis of mysteries. Identification of life principle with the Logos. Connection between drama and mysteries of Addis. Importance of the Phrygian mysteries. Nacene claim to be sole Christians. Significance of evidence. Vegetation cults as vehicle of high spiritual teaching. Exoteric and esoteric parallels with the Grail tradition. Process of evolution sketched. Beharis. Perilousvaus. Boron and the mystery tradition. Christian, legendary, and folktale, secondary, not primary features. Contents of Chapter 12 Mithra and Attis Problem of close connection of cults, their apparent divergence, nature of deities examined, Attis, Mithra, the messianic feast, Diederik, Eine Mithras Liturgy, difference between the two initiations, link between Phrygian, Mithraic, and Christian, mysteries to be found in their higher esoteric teaching, women not admitted to Mithraic initiation, possible survival in Grail text, 
joint diffusion through the Roman Empire. Cumont's Evidence Traces of Cult in British Isles Possible Explanation of Unorthodox Character of Grail Legend Evidence of Survival of Cult in 5th Century The Elucidation A Possible Record of Historic Facts Reason for Connecting Grail with Arthurian Tradition Contents of Chapter 13 The Perilous Chapel The Adventure of the Perilous Chapel in Grail Romances Gawain Form Secret of the Grail The Chapel of St. Austin Histoire de Fulk Fitzwarren Genuine Record of an Initiation Probable Locality North Britain Site of Remains of Mithra Addis Cults Traces of Mystery Tradition in Medieval Romance Owain Miles Bousset Himmelfart der Seel Parallels with Romance Appeal to Celtic Scholars Other World Journeys A Possible Survival of Mystery Tradition The Templars Were they Nessines? Contents of Chapter 14 The Author Provenance and Authorship of Grail Romantic Tradition Evidence points to Wales, probably Pembrokeshire, earliest form contained in group of Gawain poems assigned to Blaheris, of Welsh origin, master to same person, conditions of identity, Mr. E. Owen, and Bledry Ap Cadivore. Evidence not complete, but fulfills conditions of problem. Professor Singer, and possible character of Blaheris text. Mr. Alfred Nutt, Irish and Welsh parallels. Recapitulation of evolutionary process. Summary and conclusion. Animus ad amplitudarum. Mysterium pro modulo suo dilatetur, non mysteria ad angustias animi constringantur. Bacon. Translation. The mind may be enlarged according to its measure to the extent of the mysteries, not the mysteries to be restricted to the narrowness of the mind. Francis Bacon. Quote, Many literary critics seem to think that an hypothesis about obscure and remote questions of history can be refuted by a simple demand for the production of more evidence than in fact exists. But the true test of an hypothesis, if it cannot be shown to conflict with known truths, is the number of facts that it correlates and explains. Cornford Origins of Attic Comedy End of Contents Chapter 1 Introductory In view of the extensive literature to which the Grail legend has already given birth, it may seem that the addition of another volume to the already existing corpus calls for some words of apology and explanation. 
When the student of the subject contemplates the countless essays and brochures, the volumes of studies and criticism which have been devoted to this fascinating subject, the conflicting character of their aims, their hopelessly contradictory results, he or she may well hesitate before adding another element to such a veritable witch's cauldron of apparently profitless study. And indeed, were I not convinced that the theory advocated in the following pages contains in itself the element that will resolve these conflicting ingredients into one harmonious compound, I should hardly feel justified in offering a further contribution to the subject. But it is precisely because upwards of 30 years steady and persevering study of the Grail texts has brought me gradually and inevitably to certain very definite conclusions, has placed in me possession of evidence hitherto ignored or unsuspected, that I venture to offer the result in these studies, trusting they may be accepted as what I believe them to be, a genuine elucidation of the grail problem. My fellow workers in this field know all too well the essential elements of that problem. I do not need here to go over already well-trodden ground. It will be sufficient to point out certain salient features of the position. The main difficulty of our research lies in the fact that the Grail legend consists of conjuries of wildly differing elements, elements which at first appear hopelessly incongruous, if not completely contradictory, yet at the same time are present to an extent and in a form which no honest critic can afford to ignore. Thus, it has been perfectly possible for one group of scholars, relying upon the undeniably Christian legendary elements, preponderant in certain versions, to maintain the thesis that the Grail legend is ab initio a Christian and ecclesiastical legend, and to analyze the literature on that basis alone, have pointed to the strongly marked folklore features preserved in the tale, to its kinship with other themes, mainly of Celtic provenance, and have argued that, while the later versions of the cycle have been worked over by ecclesiastical writers in the interests of edification, the story itself is non-Christian and folklore in origin. Both groups have a basis of truth for their arguments. The features upon which they rely are, in each case, undeniably present. Yet at the same time, each line of argument is faced with certain insuperable difficulties, fatal to the claims advanced. Thus, the theory of Christian origin breaks down when faced with the awkward fact that there is no Christian legend concerning Joseph of Arimathea and the Grail. Neither in legendary nor in art is there any trace of the story. It has no existence outside the Grail literature. It is the creation of romance and no genuine tradition. On this very ground, it was severely criticized by the Dutch writer Jacob van Merlant in 1260. In his Merlin, he denounces the whole Grail history as lies, asserting that the Church knows nothing of it, which is true. 
In the same way, the advocate of a folklore origin is met with the objection that the section of the cycle for which such a source can be definitely proved, i.e. the Percival story, has originally nothing whatever to do with the Grail, and that, while parallels can be found for this or that feature of the legend, such parallels are isolated in character and involve the breaking up of the tale into a composite of mutually independent themes. A prototype containing the main features of the Grail story, the wasteland, the Fisher King, the hidden castle with its solemn feast and mysterious feeding vessel, the bleeding lance and cup, does not, so far as we know, exist. None of the great collections of folk tales, due to the industry of a Coskin, a Heartland, or a Campbell, has preserved specimens of such a type. It is not such a story as, e.g., the Three Days Tournament, examples of which are found all over the world. Yet neither the advocate of a Christian origin nor the folklorist can afford to ignore the arguments and evidence of the opposing school, and while the result of half a century of patient investigation has been to show that the origin of the Grail story must be sought elsewhere than in ecclesiastical legend or popular tale, I hold that the result has equally been to demonstrate that neither of these solutions should be ignored, but that the ultimate source must be sought for in a direction which shall do justice to what is sound in the claims of both. Some years ago, when fresh from the study of Sir J.G. Fraser's epic-making work, The Golden Bow, I was struck by the resemblance existing between certain features of the Grail story and characteristic details of the nature cults described. The more closely I analyzed the tale, the more striking became the resemblance, and I finally asked myself whether it were not possible that in this mysterious legend, mysterious alike in its character, its sudden appearance, the importance apparently assigned to it, followed by as sudden and complete a disappearance, we might not have the confused record of a ritual, once popular, later surviving under conditions of strict secrecy. This would fully account for the atmosphere of awe and reverence, which even under distinctly non-Christian conditions never fails to surround the grail. It may act simply as a feeding vessel. It is nonetheless tout sainte cause, and also for the presence in the tale of distinctly popular and folklore elements. Such an interpretation would also explain features irreconcilable with Orthodox Christianity, which had caused some scholars to postulate a heterodox origin for the legend and thus explain its curiously complete disappearance as a literary theme. In the first volume of my Percival studies, published in 1906, I hinted at this possible solution to the problem, a solution worked out more fully in a paper read before the Folklore Society in December of the same year and published in volume 18 of the Journal of the Society. 
By the time my second volume of studies was ready for publication in 1909, further evidence had come into my hands. I was then certain that I was upon the right path, and I felt justified in laying before the public the outlines of a theory of evolution, alike of the legend and of the literature, to the main principles of which I adhere today. But certain links were missing in the chain of evidence, and the work was not complete. No inconsiderable part of the information at my disposal depended upon personal testimony, the testimony of those who knew of the continued existence of such a ritual, and had actually been initiated into its mysteries. And for such evidence, the student of the letter has little respect. He worships the written word, for the oral living tradition from which the word derives force and vitality, he has little use. Therefore, the written word had to be found. It has taken me some nine or ten years longer to complete the evidence, but the chain is at last linked up, and we can now prove by printed texts the parallels existing between each and every feature of the Grail story and the recorded symbolism of the mystery cults. Further, we can show that between these mystery cults and Christianity, there existed at one time a close and intimate union, such a union as of itself involved the practical assimilation of the central rite, in each case a Eucharistic feast in which the worshippers partook of the food of life from the sacred vessels. In face of the proofs which will be found in these pages, I do not think any fair-minded critic will be inclined to dispute any longer the origin of the Holy Grail. After all, it is as august and ancient an origin as the most tenacious upholder of its Christian character could desire. But I should wish it clearly to be understood that the aim of these studies is, as indicated in the title, to determine the origin of the grail, not to discuss the provenance and interrelation of the different versions. I do not believe this latter task can be satisfactorily achieved unless and until we are of one accord as to the character of the subject matter. When we have made up our minds as to what the grail really was, and what it stood for, we shall be able to analyze the romances, to decide which of them contains more, which less, of the original matter, and to group them accordingly. On this point, I believe that the Table of Descent, printed in Volume 2 of my Percival Studies, is the main correct, but there is still much analytical work to be done. In particular, the establishment of the original form of the Parlesvos is highly desirable. But apart from the primary object of these studies and the results therein obtained, I would draw attention to the manner in which the evidence set forth in the chapters on the mystery cults, and especially that on the Nacine document, a text of extraordinary value from more than one point of view, supports and complements the researches of Sir J.G. Frazier. I am, of course, familiar 
with the attacks directed against the, quote, vegetation theory, the sarcasms of which it has been the object and the criticism of what is held in some quarters to be the exaggerated importance attached to these nature cults. But in view of the use made of these cults as the medium of imparting high spiritual teaching, a use which, in face of the document above referred to, can no longer be ignored or evaded, are we not just rather justified in asking if the true importance of the right has as yet been recognized? Can we possibly exaggerate their value as a factor in the evolution of religious consciousness? Such a development of his researches naturally lay outside the range of Sir J.G. Frazier's work, but posterity will probably decide that, like many other patient and honest worker, he builded better than he knew. I have carefully read Sir W. Ridgway's attack on the school in his dramas and dramatic dances, and while the above remarks explain my position with regard to the question as a whole, I would here take the opportunity of stating specifically my grounds for asserting from certain of the conclusions at which the learned author arrives. I do not wish it to be said, this is all very well, but Miss Weston ignores the arguments on the other side. I do not ignore, but I do not admit their validity. It is perfectly obvious that Sir W. Ridgway's theory, reduced to abstract terms, would result in the conclusion that all religion is based upon the cult of the dead, and that men originally knew no gods but their grandfathers, a theory from which, as a student of religion, I absolutely and entirely dissent. I can understand that such dead ancestors can be looked upon as protectors or as benefactors, but I see no ground for supposing that they have ever been regarded as creators. Yet it is precisely as vehicle for the most lofty teaching as to the cosmic relations existing between God and man that these vegetation cults were employed. The more closely one studies pre-Christian theology, the more strongly one is impressed with the deeply and daringly spiritual character of its speculations, and the more doubtful it appears that such teaching can depend upon the unaided processes of human thought, or can have been evolved from such germs as we find among the supposedly, quote, primitive peoples, such as e.g. the Australian tribes. Are they really primitive? Or are we dealing not with the primary elements of religion, but with the dejecta membra of a vanished civilization? Certain it is that so far as historical evidence goes, our earliest records point to the recognition of a spiritual, not of a material origin, of the human race. The Sumerian and Babylonian Psalms were not composed by men who believed themselves the descendants of, quote, witchety grubs. The folk practices and ceremonies studied in these pages, the dances, 
the rough dramas, the local and seasonal celebrations, do not represent the material out of which the Addis Adonis cult was formed, but surviving fragments of a worship from which the higher significance has vanished. Sir W. Ridgway is confident that Osiris, Addis, Adonis were all at one time human beings whose tragic fate gripped hold of popular imagination and led to their ultimate deification. The first named cult stands on a somewhat different basis from the others, the beneficent activities of Osiris being more widely diffused, more universal in their operation. I should be inclined to regard the Egyptian deity primarily as a culture hero rather than a vegetation god. With regard to Attis and Adonis, whatever their original character, and it seems to me highly probable that there should have been two youths, each beloved by a goddess, each victim of a similar untimely fate, long before we have any trace of them both, have become so intimately identified with the processes of nature that they have ceased to be men and become gods, and as such alone can we deal with them. It is also permissible to point out that in the case of Tammuz, Esmun, and Adonis, the title is not a proper name, but a vague appellative, denoting an abstract rather than a concrete origin. Proof of this will be found later. Sir W. Ridgway overlooks the fact that it is not the tragic death of Addis Adonis which is of importance for these cults, but their subsequent restoration to life, a feature which cannot be postulated of any ordinary mortal. And how are we to regard Tammuz, the prototype of all these deities? Is there any possible ground for maintaining that he was ever a man? Prove it we cannot, as the records of his cult go back thousands of years before our era. Here again, we have the same dominant feature. It is not merely the untimely death which is lamented, but the restoration to life which is celebrated. Throughout the whole study, the author fails to discriminate between the activities of the living and the dead king. The dead king may, as I have said above, be regarded as the benefactor, as the protector of his people, but it is the living king upon whom their actual and continued prosperity depends. The detail that the ruling sovereign is sometimes regarded as the reincarnation of the original founder of the race strengthens this point. The king never dies. Le roi est mort. Vive le roi is very emphatically the motto of this faith. It is the insistence on life, life continuous and ever-renewing, which is the abiding characteristic of these cults, a characteristic which differentiates them utterly and entirely from the ancestral worship with which Sir W. Ridgway would fain connect them. Nor are the arguments based upon the memorial rites of definitely historical heroes, of comparative late date, 
such as Hussein and Hossein, of any value here. It is precisely the death and not the resurrection of the martyr which is of the essence of the Muharram. No one contends that Hussein rose from the dead, but it is precisely this point which is of primary importance in the nature cults, and Sir W. Ridgway must surely be aware that folklorists find in this very Muharram distinct traces of borrowing from the earlier vegetation rites. The author triumphantly asserts that the fact that certain Burmese heroes and heroines are after death reverenced as tree spirits sets at rest forever the belief in abstract deities. But how can he be sure that the process was not the reverse of that which he postulates, i.e., that certain natural objects, trees, rivers, etc., were not regarded as sacred before the gnats became connected with them, that the deified human beings were not after death assigned to places already held in reverence. Such a possibility is obvious to any folklore student, and local traditions should in each case be carefully examined before the contrary is definitely asserted. So far as the origins of drama are concerned, the ode quoted later from the Nacine document is absolute and definite proof of the close connection existing between the Addis mystery ritual and dramatic performances, i.e., Addis regarded in his deified creative logos aspect, not Addis, the dead youth. Nor do I think that the idea of mana can be lightly dismissed as an ordinary case of relics, quote. The influence may well be something entirely apart from the continued existence of the ancestor, an independent force, assisting him in life, and transferring itself after death to his successor. A, quote, magic sword or staff is not necessarily a relic. Medieval romance supplies numerous instances of self-acting weapons whose virtue in no wise depends upon their previous owner, as e.g. the sword in Le Chevalier à la Paix, or the flaming lance of the Chevalier de la Charette. Doubtless, the cult of ancestors plays a large role in the beliefs of certain peoples, but it is not a sufficiently solid foundation to bear the weight of the superstructure Sir W. Ridgway would fain bear upon it, while it differs too radically from the cults he attacks to be used as an argument against them. The one is based upon death, the other on life. Wherefore, in spite of all the learning and ingenuity brought to bear against it, I avow myself an impenitent believer in Sir J. G. Fraser's main theory, and as I have said above, to be of greater and more far-reaching importance than has hitherto been suspected. I would add a few words as to the form of these studies. 
they may be found disconnected. They have been written at intervals of time extending over several years, and my aim has been to prove the essentially archaic character of all the elements composing the Grail story, rather than to analyze the story as a connected whole. With this aim in view, I have devoted chapters to features which have now either dropped out of the existing versions or only survive in a subordinate form, e.g. the chapters on The Medicine Man, Freeing of the Waters. The studies will, I hope and believe, be accepted as offering a definite contribution towards establishing the fundamental character of our material. As stated above, when we are all at one as to what the Holy Grail really was and is, we can then proceed with some hope of success to criticize the manner in which different writers have handled the inspiring theme but such success seems to be hopeless so long as we all start from different and often utterly irreconcilable standpoints and proceed upon widely diverging roads. One or another may, indeed, arrive at the goal, but such unanimity of opinion as will lend to our criticism authoritative weight is, on such lines, impossible of achievement. Chapter 2. The Task of the Hero As a first step towards the successful prosecution of an investigation into the true nature and character of the mysterious object we know as the Grail, it will be well to ask ourselves whether any light may be thrown upon the subject by examining more closely the details of the quest in its varying forms, i.e., what was the precise character of the task undertaken by or imposed upon the Grail hero, whether that hero were Gawain, Percival, or Galahad, and what the results to be expected from a successful achievement of the task. We shall find at once a uniformity which assures us of the essential identity of the tradition underlying the varying forms and a diversity indicating that the tradition has undergone a gradual but radical modification in the process of literary evolution. Taken in their relative order, the versions give the following result. Gawain, parentheses, Blaheris. Here the hero sets out on his journey with no clear idea of the task before him. He is taking the place of a knight, mysteriously slain in his company. But whither he rides and why, he does not know, only that the business is important and pressing. From the records of his partial success, we gather that he ought to have inquired concerning the nature of the grail, and that this inquiry would have resulted in the restoration to fruitfulness of a wasteland, the desolation of which is, in some manner, not clearly explained, connected with the death of a knight whose name and identity are never disclosed. Quote, Great is the loss that ye lie thus, 
tis even the destruction of kingdoms. God grant that ye be avenged, so that the folk be once more joyful, and the land repeopled, which by ye and the sword are wasted and made void. End quote. The fact that Gawain does ask concerning the lance assures the partial restoration of the land. I would draw attention to the special terms in which this is described. Quote, For so soon as Sir Gawain asked of the lance, the waters flowed again through their channel, and all the woods were turned to verdure. End quote. Dieu crone. Here the question is more general in character. It affects the marvels beheld, not the grail alone. But now the quester is prepared and knows what is expected of him. The result is to break the spell which retains the grail king in a semblance of life. And we learn by implication that the land is restored to fruitfulness. Quote, Yet had the land been waste, but by his coming had folk and land alike been delivered. End quote. Thus, in the earliest preserved, the Gawain form, the effect upon the land appears to be the primary result of the quest. Percival. The Percival versions, which form the bulk of the existing Grail text, differ considerably the one from the other, alike in the task to be achieved and the effects resulting from the hero's success or failure. The distinctive feature of the Percival version is the insistence upon the sickness and disability of the ruler of the land, the Fisher King. Regarded first as the direct cause of the wasting of the land, it gradually assumes overwhelming importance. The task of the quester becomes that of healing the king. The restoration of the land not only falls into the background, but the operating cause of its desolation is changed, and finally it disappears from the story altogether. One version alone the source of which is at present undetermined, links the Percival with the Gawain form. This is the version preserved in the Gerbert continuation of the Percival, of Chrétien de Troyes. Here, the hero, having, like Gawain, partially achieved the task, but again, like Gawain, having failed satisfactorily to re-solder the broken sword, wakes like the earlier hero, to find that the Grail Castle has disappeared and he is alone in a flowery meadow. He pursues his way through a land fertile and well-peopled and marvels much for the day before it had been a waste desert. Coming to a castle, he is received by a solemn procession with great rejoicing. Through him the folk have regained the land and goods which they had lost. The mistress of the castle is more explicit. Percival had asked concerning the grail, Pourquoi amendez somme en si fait manière qu'en cest regne la voie rivière qui ne fusse gast ne fontaine 
et la terre gaste et soutaine. Like Gawain, he has freed the waters and thus restored the land. In the prose Percival, the motif of the wasteland has disappeared. The task of the hero consists in asking concerning the grail, and by so doing, to restore the fisher king, who is suffering from extreme old age, to health and youth. C'est tu eus demand qu'elin foissa, qui le roi ton aïl fus garis de la enfermetes gil, a fus revenu en sa uvente. When the question has been asked, Le roi peshwa estwagaris et tout mues de se nature, Le roi peshe estwa mues de se nature estwagaris de se maladie, et estwa sains compuissant. Here we have the introduction of a new element, the restoration to youth of the sick king. In the Percival of Chrétien de Troyes, we find ourselves in presence of certain definite changes, neither slight nor unimportant, upon which it seems to me insufficient stress has hitherto been laid. The question is changed. The hero no longer asks what the grail is, but, as in the prose, Percival, whom it serves a departure from an essential and primitive simplicity, the motive for which is apparent in Chrétien, but not in the prose form, where there is no enigmatic personality to be served apart. A more important change is that, while the malady of the Fisher King is antecedent to the hero's visit and capable of cure if the question be asked, the failure to fulfill the prescribed conditions of itself entails disaster upon the land. Thus, the sickness of the king and the desolation of the land are not necessarily connected as cause and effect, but a point which seems hitherto unaccountably to have been overlooked. The latter is directly attributable to the quester himself. But by Percival's failure to ask the question, he has entailed dire misfortune upon the land. This idea that the misfortunes of the land are not antecedent to, but dependent upon the hero's abortive visit to the Grail Castle, is carried still further by the compiler of the Perilous Vaux, where the failure of the predestined hero to ask concerning the office of the grail, is alone responsible for the illness of the king and the misfortunes of the country. From this cause, the fisher king dies before the hero has achieved the task and can take his place. There is here no cure of the king or restoration of the land. The specific task of the grail hero is never accomplished, he comes into his kingdom as the result of a number of knightly adventures, neither more nor less significant than those found in non-grail romances. In the Perlis Vaux, in its present form, appears to be a later 
and more fully developed treatment of the motif noted in Chrétien, i.e., that the misfortunes of king and country are directly due to the quester himself, and had no antecedent existence. This, I would submit, alters the whole character of the story, and we are at a loss to know what, had the hero put the question on the occasion of his first visit, could possibly have been the result achieved. It would not have been the cure of the king. He was apparently in perfect health. It would not have been the restoration to verdure of the land. The land was not waste, whereas in the case of Gawain, there is a dead knight whose death is to be avenged. Something might have been achieved in the case of the overwhelming majority of the Percival versions, which do not contain this feature. The dependence of the curse upon the quester reduces the story to incoherence. In one Percival version alone, do we find a motif analogous to the earlier Gawain Blaheris form. In Manessier, the hero's task is not restricted to the simple asking of a question, but he must also slay the enemy whose treachery has caused the death of the fisher king's brother, thereby healing the wound of the king himself and removing the woes of the land. What these may be, we are not told, but apparently the country is not, quote, waste. In Peredur, we have a version closely agreeing with that of Chrétien. The hero fails to inquire the meaning of what he sees in the Castle of Wonders, and is told in consequence, Hadst thou done so, the king would have been restored to health, and his dominions to peace, whereas from henceforth he will have to endure battles and conflicts, and his knights will perish, and wives will be widowed, and maidens will be left portionless, and all this because of thee. This certainly seems to imply that, while the illness of the Fisher King may be antecedent to and independent of the visit and failure of the hero, the misfortunes which fall on the land have been directly caused thereby. The conclusion, which states that the bleeding head seen by the hero was, quote, was thy cousin's, and he was killed by the sorceress of Gloucester, who also lamed thine uncle, and there is a prediction that thou art to avenge these things, end quote, would seem to indicate the presence in the original of a vengeance theme, such as that referred to above. In Parzival, the stress is laid entirely on the sufferings of the king. The question has been modified in the interests of this theme, and here assumes the form, quote, What aileth thee, mine uncle? The blame bestowed upon the hero is solely on account of the prolonged sorrow his silence has inflicted on king and people, of a land laid waste either through drought or war, there is no mention. 
The punishment falls on the hero who has failed to put the question rather than on the land, which indeed appears to be in no way affected either by the wound of the king or the silence of the hero. The divergence from Chrétien's version is here very marked and so far seems to have been neglected by the critics. The point is also of importance in view of the curious parallels which are otherwise to be found between this version and Père Levaux. Here the two are in marked contradiction with one another. The question finally asked, the result is, as indicated in the prose version, the restoration of the king not merely to health, but also to youth. Galahad In the final form assumed by the story that preserved in the quest, the achievement of the task is not preceded by any failure on the part of the hero, and the advantages derived therefrom are personal and spiritual, though we are incidentally told that he heals the fisher king's father and also the old king, Mordrains, whose life has been preternaturally prolonged. In the case of this latter, it is to be noted that the mere fact of Galahad's being the predestined winner suffices, and the healing takes place before the quest is definitely achieved. There is no wasteland, and the wounding of the two kings is entirely unconnected with Galahad. We find hints in the story of Lambar of a knowledge of the earlier form, but for all practical purposes, it has disappeared from the story. Analyzing the above statements, we find that the results may be grouped under certain definite headings. A. There is a general consensus of evidence to the effect that the main object of the quest is the restoration to health and vigor of a king suffering from infirmity caused by wounds, sickness, or old age. B. And whose infirmity, for some mysterious and unexplained reason, reacts disastrously upon his kingdom, either depriving it of vegetation or exposing it to the ravages of war. C. In two cases, it is definitely stated that the king will be restored to youthful vigor and beauty. D. In both cases where we find Gawain as the hero of the story, and in one connected with Percival, the misfortune which has fallen upon the country is that of a prolonged drought, which has destroyed vegetation and left the land waste. The effect of the hero's question is to restore the waters to their channel and render the land once more fertile. E. In three cases, the misfortunes and wasting of the land are the result of war and directly caused by the hero's failure to ask the question. We are not dealing with an antecedent condition. This, in my opinion, constitutes a marked difference between the two groups, which has not hitherto received the attention it deserves. One aim of our present investigation will be to determine 
which of these two forms should be considered the elder. But this much seems certain. The aim of the Grail quest is twofold. It is to benefit A, the king, B, the land. The first of these two is the more important, as it is the infirmity of the king, which entails misfortune on his land. The condition of the one reacts, for good or ill, upon the other. How or why, we are left to discover for ourselves. Before proceeding in our investigation, it may be well to determine the precise nature of the king's illness and see whether any light upon the problem can thus be obtained. In both the Gawain forms, the person upon whom the fertility of the land depends is dead, though in the version of Diukron he is, to all appearance, still in life. It should be noted that in Bleharis form, the king of the castle, who is not referred to as the fisher king, is himself hale and sound. The wasting of the land was brought about by the blow which slew the knight whose body Gawain sees on the bier. In both the Père Laveau and the prose Percival, the king has simply fallen into languishment in the first instance, as noted above, on account of the failure of the quester, in the second as the result of extreme old age. In Chrétien, Manassier, Peredur, and the Parseval, the king is suffering from a wound, the nature of which, euphemistically disguised in the French texts, is quite clearly explained in the German. But the whole position is made absolutely clear by a passage preserved in the Son de Nancy and obviously taken over from an earlier poem. This romance contains a lengthy section dealing with the history of Joseph de Abarimathé, who is represented as the patron saint of the kingdom of Norway. His bones, with the sacred relics of which he had the charge, the grail, and the lance, are preserved in a monastery on an island in the interior of that country. In this version, Joseph himself is the fisher king, ensnared by the beauty of the daughter of the pagan king of Norway, whom he has slain. He baptizes her, though she is still an unbeliever at heart, and makes her his wife, thus drawing the wrath of heaven upon himself. God punishes him for his sin. Then, in a remarkable passage, we are told the direful result entailed by this punishment upon his land. Now there can be no possible doubt here. The condition of the king is sympathetically reflected on the land. The loss of virility in the one brings about a suspicion of the reproductive processes of nature on the other. The same effect would naturally be the result of the death of the sovereign upon whose vitality the processes depended. To sum up the result of the analysis, I hold that we have solid grounds for the belief 
that the story postulates a close connection between the vitality of a certain king and the prosperity of his kingdom, the forces of the ruler being weakened or destroyed by wound, sickness, old age, or death, the land becomes waste, and the task of the hero is that of restoration. It seems to me, then, that if we desire to elucidate the perplexing mystery of the Grail romances and to place the criticism of this important and singularly fascinating body of literature upon an assured basis, we shall do so most effectually by pursuing a line of investigation which will concentrate upon the persistent elements of the story, the character and significance of the achievement proposed, rather than upon the varying details, such as Grail and Lance, however important may be their role. If we can ascertain accurately and unmistakably the meaning of the whole, we shall, I think, find less difficulty in determining the character and office of the parts. In fact, the question, solvitur ambulando, the complex of the problem being solved, the constituent elements will reveal their significance. As a first step, I propose to ask whether this quest of the grail represents an isolated and unique achievement, or whether the task allotted to the hero, Gawain, Percival, or Galahad, is one that has been undertaken and carried out by heroes of other ages and other lands. In the process of our investigation, we must retrace our steps and turn back to the early traditions of our Aryan forefathers and see whether we cannot, even in that remote antiquity, lay our hand upon a clue which, like the fabled thread of Ariadne, shall serve as guide through the mazes of a varying yet curiously persistent tradition. Chapter 3. The Freeing of the Waters To begin at the beginning was the old storytelling formula, and it was a very sound one, if the beginning could only be definitely ascertained. As our nearest possible approach to it, I would draw attention to certain curious parallels in the earliest literary monuments of our race. I would at the same time beg those scholars who may think it a, quote, far cry from the romances of the 12th century of our era to some 1,000 years B.C. to suspend their judgment till they have fairly examined the evidence for a tradition common to the Aryan race in general and persisting with extraordinary vitality and a marked correspondence of characteristic detail through all migrations and modifications of that race down to the present day. Turning back to the earliest existing literary evidence, the Rig Veda, we become aware that in this vast collection of over 1,000 poems, it is commonly known as the Thousand and One Hymns, but the poems contained in it are more than that in number, are certain parallels with our grail stories, which, if taken by themselves, 
are perhaps interesting and suggestive rather than in any way conclusive, yet which, when they are considered in relation to the entire body of evidence, assume a curious significance and importance. We must first note that a very considerable number of the Rig Veda hymns depend for their initial inspiration on the actual bodily needs and requirements of a mainly agricultural population, i.e., of a people that depend upon the fruits of the earth for their subsistence, and to whom the regular and ordered sequence of the processes of nature was a vital necessity. Their hymns and prayers, and as we have strong reason to suppose, their dramatic ritual, were devised for the main purpose of obtaining from the gods of their worship that which was essential to ensure their well-being and the fertility of their land, warmth, sunshine, above all, sufficient water. That this last should be in an eastern land under a tropical sun become a point of supreme importance is easily to be understood. There is consequently small cause for surprise when we find throughout the collection the God who bestows upon them this much-desired boon to be the one to whom by far the greatest proportion of the hymns are addressed. It is not necessary here to enter into a discussion as to the original conception of Indra and the place occupied by him in the early Aryan pantheon, whether he was originally regarded as a god of war or a god of weather. What is important for our purpose is the fact that it is Indra to whom a disproportionate number of the hymns of the Rig Veda are addressed, that it is from him the much-desired boon of rain and abundant water is besought, and that the feet which above all others redounded to his praise and is ceaselessly glorified both by the God himself and his grateful supporters is precisely the feet by which the grail heroes, Gawain and Percival, rejoiced the hearts of the suffering folk, i.e., the restoration of the rivers to their channels, the freeing of the waters. Tradition relates that the seven great rivers of India had been imprisoned by the evil giant Vritra, or Ahi, whom Indra slew, thereby releasing the streams from their captivity. Rig Veda hymns abound in reference to this feat. It will only be necessary to cite a few from among the numerous passages I have noted. Quote, Thou hast set loose the seven rivers to flow. Thou causest water to flow on every side. Indra set free the waters. Thou, Indra, hast slain Vritra by thy vigor. Thou hast set free the rivers. Thou hast slain the slumbering Ahi for the release of the waters, and hast marked out the channels of the all-delighting rivers. Indra has filled the rivers, he has inundated the dry land. Indra has released the imprisoned waters to flow upon the earth. It would be easy to fill pages with similar quotations, but these are sufficient for our purpose. 
Among the Rig Veda hymns are certain poems in dialogue form, which from their curious and elliptic character have been the subject of much discussion among scholars. Professor Oldenburg, in drawing attention to their peculiarities, had expressed his opinion that these poems were the remains of a distinct type of early Indian literature, where verses forming the central and illuminating point of a formal ceremonial recital had been farced with illustrative and explanatory prose passages, the form of the verses being fixed, that of the prose being varied at the will of the reciter. This theory, which is technically known as the Akiyana theory, as it derived its starting point from the discussion of the Suparnayakana text, won considerable support, but was contested by N. Sylvain Levy, who asserted that in these hymns we had the remains of the earliest and oldest Indian dramatic creations, the beginning of the Indian drama, and that the fragments could only be satisfactorily interpreted from the point of view that they were intended to be spoken, not by a solitary reciter, but by two or more Dramatis Personae. J. Hertel, Der Unsprung des Indischen Dramas und Epos, went still further, and while accepting and demonstrating the justice of this interpretation of the, quote, dialogue poems, suggested a similar origin for creating monologues found in the same collection. Professor Leopold von Schroeder in his extremely interesting volume, Mysterium und Mimus im Rig Veda, has given a popular and practical form to the results of these researches by translating and publishing, with an explanatory study, a selection of these early culture dramas, explaining the speeches and placing them in the mouth of the respective actors to whom they were presumably assigned. Professor von Schroeder holds the entire group to be linked together by one common intention, viz. the purpose of stimulating the processes of nature and of obtaining as a result of what may be called a ritual culture drama, an abundant return of the fruits of the earth. The whole book is rich in parallels drawn from ancient and modern sources and is of extraordinary interest to the folklore student. In the light thrown by Professor von Schroeder's researches, following as they do upon the illuminating studies of Manhart and Fraser, we become strikingly aware of the curious vitality and persistence of certain popular customs and beliefs. And while the two last-name writers have rendered inestimable service to the study of comparative religion by linking the practices of classical and medieval times with the folk customs of today, we recognize through von Schroeder's work that the root of such belief and custom is embedded in a deeper stratum of folk tradition than we had hitherto realized, that it is, in fact, a heritage from the far-off past of the Aryan peoples. For the purposes of our special line of research, Mysterium und Mimus offers much of value and interest. 
As noted above, the main object of these primitive dramas was that of encouraging, we may say, ensuring the fertility of the earth. Thus, it is not surprising that more than one deals with the theme of which we are treating, the freeing of the waters, only that whereas in the quotations given above, the worshippers praise Indra for his beneficent action. Here Indra himself, in propria persona, appears and vaunts his feet. There is no need to insist further on the point that the task of the grail hero is in this special respect no mere literary invention, but a heritage from the achievements of the prehistoric heroes of the Aryan race. But the poems selected by Professor von Schroeder for discussion offer us a further and more curious parallel with the Grail romances. In section 8 of the work referred to the author discusses the story of Rishi Kringa, as the Mahabharata names the hero. Here we find a young Brahmin brought up by his father, Vibhandaka, in a lonely forest, hermitage, absolutely ignorant of the outside world, and even of the very existence of beings other than his father and himself. He has never seen a woman and does not know that such a creature exists. A drought falls upon a neighboring kingdom, and the inhabitants are reduced to great straits for lack of food. The king, seeking to know by what means the sufferings of his people may be relieved, learns that so long as Rishi Kringa continues chaste, so long will the drought endure. An old woman who has a fair daughter of irregular life undertakes the seduction of the hero. The king has a ship or raft, both versions are given, fitted out with all possible luxury, and an apparent hermit cell erected upon it. The old woman, her daughter, and companions embark, and the river carries them to a point not far from the young Brahmin's hermitage. Taking advantage of the absence of his father, the girl visits Risha Kringa in his forest cell, giving him to understand that she is a hermit like himself, which the boy, in his innocence, believes. He is so fascinated by her appearance and caresses that, on her leaving him, he, deep in thought of the lovely visitor, forgets for the first time his religious duties. On his father's return, he innocently relates what has happened, and the father warns him that fiends in this fair disguise strive to tempt hermits to their undoing. The next time the father is absent, the temptress, watching her opportunity, returns and persuades the boy to accompany her to her hermitage, which she assures him is far more beautiful than his own. So soon as Rishi Kringa is safely on board the ship sails, the lad is carried to the capital of the rainless land, the king gives him his daughter as wife, and so soon as the marriage is consummated, the spell is broken and rain falls in abundance. Professor von Schroeder points out that there is little doubt that, in certain earlier versions of the tale, the king's daughter herself 
played the role of temptress. There is no doubt that a ceremonial marriage very frequently formed a part of the fertility ritual and was supposed to be specially efficacious in bringing about the effect desired. The practice subsists in Indian ritual to this hour, and the surviving traces in European folk custom have been noted in full by Manhart in his exhaustive work on Wald and Fildkulte. Its existence in classic times is well known, and it is certainly one of the living folk customs for which a well-attested chain of descent can be cited. Professor von Schroeder remarks that the efficacy of the rite appears to be enhanced by the previous strict observance of the rule of chastity by the officiant. What, however, is of more immediate interest for our purpose is the fact that Rishi Kringa's story does, in fact, possess certain curious points of contact with the Grail tradition. Thus, the lonely upbringing of the youth in a forest, far from the haunts of men, his absolute ignorance of the existence of human beings other than his parent and himself, present a close parallel to the accounts of Percival's youth and woodland life as related in the Grail romances. In Gerbert's continuation, we are told that the marriage of the hero is an indispensable condition of achieving the quest, a detail which must have been taken over from an earlier version, as Gerbert proceeds to stultify himself by describing the solemnities of the marriage and the ceremonial blessing of the nuptial couch, after which hero and heroine simultaneously agree to live a life of strict chastity and are rewarded by the promise that the swan knight shall be their descendant, a tissue of contradictions, which can only be explained by the maladroit blending of two versions, one of which knew the hero as wedded, the other as celibate. There can be no doubt that the original Percival story included the marriage of the hero. The circumstances under which Risha Kringa is lured from his hermitage are curiously paralleled by the account found in the quest and manassier of Percival's temptation by a fiend in the form of a fair maiden who comes to him by water in a vessel hung with black silk and with great riches on board. In pointing out these parallels, I wish to make my position perfectly clear. I do not claim that either in the Rig Veda or in any other early Aryan literary monument, we can hope to discover the direct sources of the Grail legend. But what I would urge upon scholars is the fact that, in adopting the hypothesis of a nature cult as a possible origin, and examining the history of these cults, their evolution, and their variant forms, we do, in fact, find at every period and stage of development undoubtedly points of contact, which, though taken separately, might be regarded as accidental, in their ensemble can hardly be thus considered. When every parallel to our Grail story is found within the circle of a well-defined and carefully studied sequence of belief and practice, 
when each and all form part of a well-recognized body of tradition, the descent of which has been abundantly demonstrated, then I submit such parallels stand on a sound basis, and it is not unreasonable to conclude that the body of tradition containing them belongs to the same family and is to be interpreted on the same principles as the closely analogous rites and ceremonies. I suspend the notice and discussion of other poems contained in Professor von Schroeder's collection till we have reached a later stage of the tradition, when their correspondence will be recognized as even more striking and suggestive. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.